depths of human experience. No, 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 not the the boundless wonder of the human soul and and uh, and, 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 and 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 spark of no, 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 no cog in the in the, the the great wheel of 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 life tracks. No, no, no traces. The uh, uh, full cast and crew section, IMDb page, cinema jokes. Oh, I'd give anything, anything to write another great intro to this episode of Full Cast and Crew, a podcast that traces the workings of the great cosmic wheel. Anything, Christopher? How about your very soul? <laughs> Chris, doesn't it make you pine for the days when you could just sell your soul for whatever artistic <laughs> accomplishments you wanted? I mean, that's a trade-off we'd all make. The bottom has dropped out of the soul market. They're going for 15 minutes on a reality show these days. So wait, let me get this straight. Accomplish all dreams, become fantastically rich and successful, and remain young for all eternity. And all I got to do is like preserve some tape and book somewhere. Where do I sign? <laughs> My name's Jason. Chris and is we, my name. We are here as the Full Cast and Crew podcast. We take a movie. We do all kinds of fun shit with it. And today we're talking about a movie that we didn't intend to start out talking about. But then when we watched, or at least when we say we, I mean I, watched the movie we did intend to watch, I emailed Chris late at night and said, can we not do this movie? <laughs> this all came about in a roundabout way through super listener Frazier's friends posting about <laughs> Brian De Palma's The Fury One. What do you mean you won? You did not. There are no secrets between father and son. Come on, Dad. You saw except you one. You have a talent that would shock the hell out of people. But it's a talent that else can be put to good use. For lovers of the shocking, the suspenseful, and the terrifying comes a new classic. The Fury. And I saw this on social media. You saw it on social media, and something about it was like, "Hey, oh, right. I mean, the title, the, the cast." I mean, I De Palma. Re I remember it from from childhood, and I thought that's a wacky, crazy De Palma movie. We wanted to do a De Palma movie. Well, like many things in childhood, when you look back upon them now, eh, I was I, the Fury. I mean, it's it's bonkers in places, which yeah. I appreciate, but. It's nowhere near as cohesive a movie as the De Palma we ended up watching. No, and the strength of vision was not as strong. Though I will say, Indeed. this was my first time seeing The Fury, so I was fascinated with parts of it, especially the warts that they allowed, yeah. not Lloyd Bridges, uh... <laughs> Kirk that Douglas. Would, that would be I, funny, though. I will always, because when it started, I was like, oh, this is so great that he did Airplane just a couple years later. <laughs> Wait, explain something to me. I mean, we're going to talk about the Fury briefly as a reason why, yeah. why we're not talking about it, because we are here to talk about Phantom of the Paradise, which, ah, oh, the comforting blanket-like warmth of the true De Palma bonkers-ishness <laughs> I was after. Thank you for delivering that right away. First 15 seconds of Phantom of the Paradise, I got exactly what I wanted. A lot of the Fury is well made, technically, mm -hmm. and a lot is made of that opening scene where father and son are in some right. Middle Eastern seaside resort, and then there's some sort of government hocus pocus and a faked kidnapping thing, although everyone is actually shot and killed. Somebody is actually kidnapped, yeah. and people do die, so I don't know how, how fake, fake it is. It? Really Why is dad, played by uh, Lloyd Bridges? L Kirk Douglas. Kirk Douglas. <laughs> he leaves his child, who's been, again, he just gets in the boat and starts driving off. Why does he do that? Well, because he doesn't realize. He trusts his friend, like, take him away. I'm going to, oh. like, lead them away. Because I guess he's, like, oh. a spy, a government guy. I know. It's just as a parent, even if, <laughs> like, you were, like, take, even if I said, Chris, take my daughter and, and go. And then I, like, saw a boat. I, I wouldn't be, like, I'm going to just take this boat yeah. and go away myself. Well, parenting is very different now. I mean, like, I so. that's what was fascinating to see this this character because, you know, he <sighs> punches a lot of people and like waves guns around like just willy nilly. I don't know what the hell is going on in that movie. Most of the time, I thought Amy Irving gave a great performance yes. in a somewhat thankless role, even though it's got a very important role. Like he doesn't write the greatest female characters. You know, I mean, it's so hard. I had a similar thing with Smokey and the Bandit on the page. I don't know what. How I didn't know he directed character... Smokey and the Bandit. Yeah. That's yeah, no, why the split screen was so very... <laughs> in use. That Sally Field, how much of that character was as yes, it was written, or is yes. it just sort of her right. the, imbuing a soul into it yeah. that made it better? Amy, Irving, was Amy great. Irving really did. However, the same cannot be said for her psychic ESP counterpart, who does not possess thine dynamic 
acting instrument. He's doing fine. What's his name? Andrew. Yeah, he's like a whole. He's like a producer now. Studio producer guy. And, you know, and there are worse fates. But I'll tell you, spoiler for 19 whatever's uh, The Fury, the third act twist when they do arrive at the house, yeah. that characters change from having... Yes. Yeah, spoiler. He's no longer this naive that yes. needs to be saved, that he has already been driven He's been driven mad. insane. It was creepy. Like there were creepy, creepy visuals. I mean, him hanging up in the upper yeah. corner of the room, which, remember that was voted one of the most creepy images of 2018 in from... Hereditary. From Hereditary. Yes. I wonder if there's a correlation between those two shots, because yeah. that might have had an impact on the Hereditary director as a younger person. I'll but bet. Anyway, I've watched the whole goddamn running time of the Fury and just got <laughs> to the end and I was like, I don't want to talk about this movie yeah. any more than we just did. And so that's when I emailed you and I was like, and I was like, oh fuck, like Phantom of the Paradise. Phantom of the Paradise. So delivered exactly what I wanted and strikingly holds together as a completely visionary thing yes. throughout, even though it's all, so all over the place and a style of movie that I think was so specific to this era. And it can no longer be made in the sense there's a sincerity to its, its youthful yes. judgment of the world and still a command of cinema. That is so striking and so unique. And now that film is just looked at differently mm -hmm. and we've moved sort of past film to the television, to the streaming era, there's something about that largeness of vision that can sort of never be there's an innocence loss. I don't know if many people have seen Phantom of the Paradise. It's Brian De Palma. It's 1974. Here's the trailer for as much good as that'll do you. <laughs> 20th Century Fox presents Phantom of the Paradise a gothic horror story. What was that? A beautiful love story. Like a, a cinematic odyssey through the rock universe. From Greece to glitter wow. and beyond. The story of a sound. The man who created it. The girl who sang it. The monster who stole it, and the phantom who haunts the paradise, the ultimate rock palace. Phantom of the Paradise. My music is for Phoenix. Only she can sing it. Anyone else that tries, dies. Phoenix. Phoenix. Well, you told me one time that you'd be somebody that you weren't working just to survive. Man, you better get yourself a castrato for this. Paul Williams as Swan. And the angels that I want you to stop terrorizing the paradise and rewrite your cantata. And the Phantom. Phantom of the Paradise. There really is the Phantom, Phantom, Phantom. So, I mean, this precedes Rocky Horror Picture Show by a year. But yes. there's a lot of commonality in the type of movie this was, the type of movie going experience it offered. When the movie starts, there's this great intro. Swan. He has no other name. His past is a mystery, but his work is already a legend. He wrote and produced his first gold record at 14. In the years since then, he has won so many others that he once tried to deposit them in Fort Knox. He brought the blues to Britain. He brought Liverpool to America. He brought folk and rock together. His band, the Juicy Fruits, single-handedly gave birth to the nostalgia wave in the 70s. Now he is looking for the new sound of the spheres to inaugurate his own Xanadu, his own Disneyland, the paradise, the ultimate rock palace. This film is the story of that search, of that sound, of the man who made it, 
the girl who sang it and the monster who stole it. I had forgotten that that was in there. So when I heard the I totally forgotten the it too. Smoky tones of of Mr. Rod Mr. Serling. Rod Serling, one of the greatest writers of the 20th century Absolutely. of popular culture. It put me in such a great mood to watch. I thought all the iconography, fonts, design stuff was still really fresh and uh, yes. and great. The titles when we were playing the trailer, Phantom is in neon and I guess yeah. Paradise is in sort of heavy metalish logo. If it's not clear to I mean we have a very educated listenership, but there are probably one or two people. It's a combination of Phantom of the Opera, picture of Dorian Gray, though that does that's not apparent necessarily in the thing, Faust, but it's all of these classic stories put in a modern setting, which is another one of those things that I'm sure at the time felt, you know, what's that word? I guess corny, right? Because of that kind of sincerity when you're yeah. trying to be kind of hip in the moment. And yes. yet what might have seemed corny in 74 wasn't wrong. Some very prescient stuff about it. It has a very sharp eye for the pop culture of its own moment moment. Watching the trailer, there are satirizations, if that's a word, of many pop acts of the day. So you have sort of a sha-na-na greaser type band, which is great. That first musical number that we start out in is so good. Yeah. One of the strengths of Phantom of the Paradise is the quality of the songs in a movie that hinges upon the music and the songs being supposedly so good that someone's willing to go to the lengths they all go to. Which is something that is so rarely happens, to have original music actually be good enough. Because we have Paul Williams writing the songs, they are good. Really good in some places. The first song from Winslow is really beautiful and haunting, the yes. piano ballad that he plays. Out of place is a crying clown who could only frown and the play went on for hours And as I live my role I swore I'd sell my soul for one love Who would stand by me And give me back the gift of laughter Yeah One love Who would stand by me and after making love, we dream a bit of style. The Juicy Fruits doing the, the sha-na-na thing at the top is brilliant. Totally. Hilarious. It's also brilliant because it works on level. It starts out and it seems fine, but they let the number go on really long. Yes. As the number goes on, it, it becomes gets really twisted <laughs> it and weird. And the stage show that they do, yes. they reenact sexual assault. Yes. Which is funny because, I mean, that's what's now not so funny about watching Grease as we talked about. Yes. This movie is like the center of the full cast and crew cinematic podcasting universe. Because almost every episode we've ever done is referenced through yes. Phantom of the Paradise. Yes. Grease, Saturday Night Fever. Smokey and the Bandit. Smokey and the Bandit. A Star is Born. Paul wrote the songs for, for the 76 Stars Born with Barbara, including Evergreen. Ishtar, also Paul Williams. Paul Williams wrote the purposefully bad songs in Ishtar, yes. which... I yeah, guess he nailed it. Man, I really loved all the songs. That's what was cool about the movie for me. And then the parodies, like, so the Beach Boys are parodized by an act called the Beach Buns. Carburetors, man. That's what life is all about. It's great. It's like the Beach Boys, yes, there's musical genius and all that, but it's also like, yeah, they love their carburetor and would write a song about it. That scene, it's another great thing about this movie is that it has this clunkily obvious but still incisive satire. But at the same time, there are some sophisticated filmmaking things going on. Like that scene in particular, it's like two tracking shots. It is. A split screen with two tracking shots going on at once. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen that. I mean... But it's, uh, to your point, it looks pretty simple and is simple for you to digest as a viewer. It's actually pretty hard to do, though. Yeah, I'm sure it's a nightmare. But not only is it visually you have these two tracking shots, but you also have the singing going on and the ticking and the conversations. You could barely sort of hear yeah. either because they're, but it, it works. It and works. I think that's probably deliberate for them to both undermine each other. Between the Fury and this, you start to see a bit of a company of actors. Certainly William Finley, who plays Winslow slash the Phantom, is the crazy ESP beach bum guy who spots Amy Irving. And the, when people hear beach bum, we're not talking about like a guy in shorts with a surfboard. No, he's a guy in a sweaty suit who has 
hasn't uh, bathed in days drinking out of a bottle yes. out of a paper bag. Great horror actor, great member of the company of Brian De Palma here taking center stage as Winslow and the Phantom. Paul Williams is the mythical Phil Spector-esque. I think originally it was supposed to be called Spector. Instead right? of Swan was supposed to be called Was that one of the things they had to change because of like James Bond Spector or? You know, all that I had read was that they changed it. So it probably they were just like, ah, my, that might be a little too on the He nose. might come and shoot someone. Though calling it Swan and all the bird stuff had its own problems. It did because originally in a lot of the graphics, which I think have been replaced in the 2016 Blu-ray release, I think they went back to what was supposed to be Swan Song was the name of his production entity and company, but that was a Led Zeppelin publishing entity. And I think there was either litigation or just a decision to stay away from it. I think it. the way that they put it when I read it was the release come up like, I know we would win the legal battle, but it's not worth the hassle. Yeah. Let's get it ready for the release. First of all, Death Records. Great. That is awesome. <laughs> now we know where Suge Knight got the idea for Death Row Records. Death <laughs> I would wear that as a t-shirt. I'm sure there are. I oh, yeah. People, it's, like you said, it's a great logo. I went down the Paul Williams rabbit hole, of course, after this and watched his documentary again, still alive. And there were shots of Paul Williams conventions. The bizarre story of the one city in the world where this movie was a success. Yeah. Winnipeg. Winnipeg. Big success yeah. in Winnipeg. Yeah, there are overlays over what used to say Swan Song. And then they kind of move in a poorer fashion because of the film. And it was a pleasure to discover Jessica Harper. Interesting actor of the era. She's much more interesting than the degree to which she's known. You know what I mean? Like yes. I found her as compelling as an Amy Irving, as compelling as a Deborah Winger, as compelling as um, the two actors we always confuse with each other from this era of filmmaking. <laughs> Karen Allen, Margot Kidder, and, uh, and Debbie Allen. Brooke Adams. Or, I had known of her from uh, Suspiria. You know, that was Suspiria, a bit, of course. And, she's... As well as... The Rocky Horror Picture Show's sequel, Shock Treatment, she <laughs> that, took on the Susan Sarandon role. That I have not seen. Uh, not quite as uh, memorable. Janet! I've come to see Brad. It's you we're concerned about, Janet. Are you happy? Well, I'm happy. But that has nothing to do, of course, with sure. Jessica Harper. Uh, that's just, that's fate. Uh, but yeah, she was great in this. And she actually is a very interesting person. I heard her being interviewed recently. Oh, really? Around the time of the Suspiria remake, I think she, she was- She has a role in that too. She, yes, she had a role in that. Fascinating person. And actually, she is also a podcaster. Is uh, she really? Yes, she does a podcast, I think, based on her own memoirs about her Ooh, I would like her that. life. As I said, Phantom of the Paradise is connected to everything in the full <laughs> cast and crew cinematic <laughs> podcasting universe. And she was, according to her IMDb full cast and crew page, arguably the first quote unquote series American actress to have a truly explicit on-screen sex scene in inserts, which contrary to the title is not one of those 1975 Jamie Gillis porn era <laughs> movies, but is actually a Richard Dreyfuss vehicle. Really? This was a John Byram film. The young, once great Hollywood film director refuses to accept changing times during the early 30s and confines himself to his decaying mansion to make silent porn flicks. Wow. Starring Richard Dreyfuss, Jessica Harper, Bob Hoskins. I watched a little of it uh -huh. last night. It's, it's extremely bizarre and drug-addled and of its time. She went on to marry Tom Rothman, who's a very powerful film executive. Mm -hmm. But she's a really compelling actor. I really yes. liked her in this. She's not really the heroine because she pretty willingly, like, well, I, was, I mean, that forsakes me. our hero, Winslow, for Swan. As sort of cheesy and as obvious as some of the things about it, like, there's some complexity. To, certainly the two most sympathetic characters. Yeah. She has a desire for fame and we do see her. She like throws herself at Paul Williams at one point. He's like, all yeah. I want is your voice. She's like, you're going to be a very big star, Phoenix. We'll finish the cantata tomorrow night. We'll, we'll record, we'll go on tour and then there are no words to express what you're going to become. I'll do anything you want. I owe you everything. Just give me that crowd again. Tomorrow night. Tomorrow night they'll be yours. And all I want is your voice. Is that all? No. Isn't there anything else? Are you not thinking about maybe sex? <laughs> And also Winslow Leach, uh, yeah. again, a, a sort of, I don't want to say brave, but they allow his negative sides to come out very early. And Winslow's negative sides? Yeah. I think it drives or the his negative sides. As as his, his anger when, uh, when, 
I mean, he's the, he's the put upon victim. He's our hero. But he makes himself a victim. Like in his first scene with Philbin, uh, when Philbin mentions like, yeah, maybe the Juicy Fruits will record it. He doesn't say, no, thank you. He like grabs the guy, throws him but against that, the wall. He's artistically pure. He's offended at the mere idea of cheapening his masterwork with a confection like the Juicy Fruits. Which is nice and well and good, but there's also a learned helplessness and faux naivete that he evinces by giving the music to the guy, never sort of hearing about so it you're saying he's later. a sap. And then later, after he has already been turned into the Phantom, after he has gone through, boy, a real rough time when he loses all... <laughs> All his teeth, his face is scarred, he has no voice. The journey that he goes through, they pack a lot of tragedy sure. into five minutes for the guy. But then when Swan is like, okay, you could trust me this time. He's like, time. okay. Yeah. The f- hey, that's the that's what you got to do to make it. You want to know? But that's what I mean. And I thought that was, that was an interesting thing. Instead of just making him put upon, there is part of his own mistake because he wants it to happen so much that he rushes and becomes impatient in a way that I think allows him to, and I wouldn't say that he is complicit, but uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit more depth of character than it might have been. You know, I can't say it any better than the Young Brothers and Bon Scott said in 1975, Matt, please play me a little of something I know you have immediately queued up. It's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. You know that song? No. Is that it's a long kiss? way. No, it's ACDC. Oh. It's about what you're willing to give up to make it in the music business and what it takes. Among the many things that Phantom of the Paradise is, is such a still brilliantly incisive take on the music business right. and what it does. And it strips away any preconceived veneer of artistic purity that you might want to believe exists. I think that turned for our hero, who, yes, is a thick-lensed... <laughs> psycho nerdy musical genius who after the brilliant Grease Sha Na Na parody is playing this beautiful Paul Williams song and doing it really really well yeah He's both a naif and a sap. And in a bit of pre-Chud East River toxicity humor, he's beaten and thrown into the East River and then emerges like a fish with three heads. He doesn't look great. He doesn't look good. Is that before or after he has had his face mauled by being put into a record (laughs) pressing machine? Record pressing machine. And then also, conveniently enough, I mean, if you're going to be a kingmaker in rock and roll, it's very helpful to have your own prison (laughs) So that you can send people there and have them experimented upon in your prison dental college. Oh, my God. Welcome to Sing Sing. We are very fortunate to be included here in the Dental Health Research Program. This is a volunteer program funded by the Swan Foundation. You are all volunteers. All your teeth will be pulled. Teeth are a source of infection, and it pays to be on the safe side. Sir? Pardon me? I'm not a volunteer. I'm innocent. I want you to take my teeth out. Oh, how many men here are innocent? Raise your hands. Oh, innocent. (laughs) That's how he gets his silver teeth. And then I love the scene where he finds his way back to the paradise, which is the rock theater. He goes and he finds his wardrobe. There's a great shot of just his hand flicking through a a whole rack of this. Too many feathers. Green. I don't look good in green. I laughed out loud at that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it's just like a shot of like, no, no, no. No, yeah. He takes that. He gets this great helmet. What was that going to be used for? (laughs) But you talked about how this is an insightful thing about the record industry, but I think a lot of those insights apply to other industries because I was reading in an article about this on The Nerdist that the project, quote, came about after Phantom of the Opera became one of two options that Pressman and De Palma picked up after the lauded director became disillusioned with big studio movies. <laughs> so I Wait a minute. When did he become disillusioned with big studio movies when he hadn't made one yet? The impression that I got from reading of that was probably huh. might have been things that didn't actually get made or that got shelved yeah. or the plug pulled, having to jump through hoops and promises from Hollywood and things that didn't happen. And who knows, this whole story is about somebody whose idea is stolen. Maybe he felt like, you know, Star Wars is really mine. True. He is the man who came up with the crawl on Star Wars. Is that true? That's what they say. Huh. He said that he was helping a friend with his science fiction movie uh-huh. and experimented with the crawl. No that's, kidding. I don't know if that's true. Well, but I read that purposes- somewhere. 
I think that your signature openings get appropriate amount of attention. I don't think, however, that your signature endings get enough. I think we need to center them in the narrative of the podcast. So I'll cut it back into the center. What Chris does is he plays the last line of dialogue from a famous or infamous or known or slightly well-known film. And what we want you to do is be first to figure out what it was. When the episode goes up, we'll put up a image from the film that you're talking about that doesn't give it away. And we will say, who can identify Chris's final line from this week's episode? Oh, I love that. And we'll do I that think on, that's great. We'll do that on Facebook. Facebook finally has a reason for being. So the De Palma style always includes a certain voyeurism or yes. outright voyeurism, usually men voyeuristically peering upon the female form engaged in sexual congress of one form or another. For example, like you might be on the roof of somebody's building in the rain and there's surveillance cameras, which they also have trained on their bed, probably to actually watch them doing yeah, this sexual I mean, congress. If you're going to do that, it's probably easier just to put the camera inside. <laughs> like, I don't know why the camera has to be outside on the roof in the weather it, pointing down at the, the voyeurism. That's the voyeurism. Yeah. Um, so sisters, that's a slasher film, Margot Kidder, Charles Durning, who's also in the Fury. Yes. Um, so Fury is when? I think that was 76. Yeah, 76. No, Carrie was 76. Oh, Fury is 78. Fury is 78. So, so Carrie was the movie I would say that really yeah. put him on the map in a major way, like for the general public. I think right. he probably was known and in the know for quite a while before that. And of course, famously uh, was the first person to put Robert De Niro in a movie. Uh, which would have been The Wedding Party, 1969 wow. film farce created as a joint effort by Sarah Lawrence, Sarah Lawrence theater professor Wilfred Leach and two of his students, protege Brian De Palma and Cynthia Monroe. Wow. Uh, so it was actually made in 1963. But it wasn't released until 69 after De Niro started getting notice for um, some theater and another De Palma movie, Greetings, from 1968. Huh. Uh, and William Finley was also in I did see The Wedding right. Party. Um, I have to say, I haven't seen that many De Palma films. And I know, you know, we've talked back and forth. There, you know, he's got sort of a, a trashier reputation than some of his contemporaries. Yeah. But, uh, like... I found both this, and again, despite fully acknowledging some limitations to it, both yeah. this, the Fury, um, like he is really great movie, blow, which I haven't seen in years, but he is so entertaining yes. and like um, yeah, exciting. Going to, going to the fucking movies, yeah. I thought watching Phantom of the Paris, like this would have been so much fun to see in a movie theater, yeah. in the seventies. I mean, it's just entertainment, but. It does have art behind it. And cinematically, you know, looking through the IMDb page here for De Palma, you have a mix of even even the movies that are iconic, like Carrie, I would say, is an iconic mm -hmm, horror movie. Mm -hmm. But when you watch Carrie today, you know, it's a little clunky in the way it's so of its time. It's it's the mechanics of it. Uh clunkily arrive at the genuinely shocking, horrific imagery. And I think the yes. imagery of De Palma is what I think of a lot and the over-the-topness, right? I'm a big blowout fan. I think that's yes. a great Travolta movie. I love Body Double, which is kind of the ur-cheese De Palma that you're talking about. Yes. Mixed with all the noir thriller stuff. He is so Hitchcock light. I don't yeah. want to I don't want to disparage him in a way, but I mean, even in Phantom of the Paradise, I mean, there's an outright direct shower scene until the payoff is a plunger instead of a knife. Have you seen Snake Eyes? Not one oh, of his we've most talked about. We've Have talked we? about it. We, isn't that the one? That's Nicolas Cage that's and Gary Sinise. Insane. Where he has the, an asthma inhaler and he's jumping up and down in the strip club? It's Kiss of Death. Oh, Kiss of Death. The guy who directed Reversal of Fortune directed that. <laughs> this is Snake Eyes is directed by De Palma. And that oh. takes place in Atlantic City with Gary Sinise and Nicolas Cage. I don't know if I see And that, that also starts with like a long this. track. It is, it's it is be maligned so over the top. and considered garbage by a lot of people. But yeah. I'll tell you. Both Nicolas Cage and Gary Sinise, bring it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
It has a 41% rotten score. Yeah. Ouch. Spoiler for 1998's Snake Eyes, but there is a scene with, with, by the end where where Gary Sinise's character, like, he's sort of given up on subtlety, like, as a character and therefore as an actor as sure. well. And the, like, unbridled, like, mm. uh, um, anger that sure. he's showing to me, it was so... I will watch great. this. It's only 98 minutes. Thank you, Brian De Palma. It's really, it's really exciting. And like I said, it starts out with a great tracking shot that also has, you know, we are at prime, this is prime cage. Sure. Of course, you know I love a good cinematic train wreck. Yes. I love any cinematic train wreck that sparks the writing of numerous books about <laughs> said cinematic train wreck. And therefore, I am always, always interested in Uber 90s black hole of cinema, Bonfire of the Vanities, yes. one of the most famous film bombs of all time, and the origin of a great book about when a movie goes wrong called The Devil's Candy. That's a great, great book if you like reading about how these things go start to go wrong and what happens as they're going wrong. I really like it. This was 1990, I guess. So this was like the first sort of 90s feeling flop of its sort that had every big movie star yeah. of the time. Tom Hanks, Bruce Willis, Melanie Griffith, Morgan Freeman. I mean. Right. And a great book that was very like <laughs> it was, was the hugest blockbuster book of the time. It was. And it's kind of hard in a way to to think about fucking it up, I guess, because the book story is kind of the story. It's a very good yes. story, mm -hmm. you know. Tom Wolfe, but the choices that were made. So I love watching it because it's a watchable flop. It's a flop uh -huh. of POV choice and not a flop of execution per se, but like some very fundamental starting points were gotten wrong. This is not a dig at Tom Hanks. Would you say that casting Tom Hanks, for example, like is that a POV? Because he seems like an no. odd choice for it. No, I don't think so. I think Tom Hanks could have done this. Tom Hanks can play Wall Street bond trader jerk. He just wasn't, I think, in the hands of someone who really enabled him with the screenplay to do that. No, I don't think Tom Hanks is where this went wrong. I think where it started to go wrong rests entirely upon our hero, Mr. Brian De Palma, mm -hmm. uh, in the screenplay. Uh, you know, I guess, I don't know, is the casting frequently maligned? I, I don't really know. I just remember, like, because I read the book. I mean, I, yeah. I was a kid, but it was like the first time that it was like, oh, this is a book adults are talking about, so I'll read it. And I do remember at least getting enough of a thing, I think because they describe him as being sort of so blonde and yes. country clubbish and yes. stuff like that, that. And that's not Tom Hanks. And that's not Tom Hanks, though, looking at the movie now, I'd be interested to see, like, because I'm, you're right, there's certainly things that I'm sure he could have done, but I think the kindness and the goodness that Tom Hanks yes. gives off, to me, thinks like, I would think that that would undercut it in a way that I know, I don't know, that somebody else might not have. And uh, like Bruce Willis's character is actually, looking at it now, that actually does make sense, even though it was supposed to be like a British yeah. tabloid right. type. Um, so yeah. yeah, I'd be interested to look at it to see it's where it's worth where watching again. I mean, the book is great. Yeah. The Devil's Candy book is a great, great book. I remember the hype for Mission to Mars. Do you remember that? I do. Everyone really wanted that to be really, really good. Another Gary Sinise vehicle. Not, uh, uh, not good. <laughs> not and actually, good. that was one of those. And I'm always, I always love this. There were two Mars movies that came out at yes. roughly the same time. The other one was, I think, just called Mars. Yeah. Uh, with Val Kilmer, I believe. It's funny because Mission to Mars is another movie, kind of like Bonfire of the Vanities, where you're sort of like, man, with everything that you got going here, you can't, it'd be pretty hard to make a bad Mission to Mars movie, but yeah. Brian De Palma somehow figured out a way to do that. <laughs> with Tim <laughs> Robbins, Don Cheadle, of... Connie Nielsen, Jerry O'Connell, Kim Delaney, Gary Sinise. Like, uh, Well, to get back to this yeah, movie. Right, right back to this movie. There's just so many good De Palma movies to talk about. He's such a weird guy of that same era of... You know, George Lucas, uh, Spielberg, like he's one of them. Coppola, right, exactly. He's it's one such, of them. It's actually in some way, we, like we think of that new Hollywood or those directors as there's something consistent about them. And yet you really couldn't confuse a Brian De Palma movie with a yeah. Scorsese movie or um, <laughs> certainly not a Hal Ashby movie. Yes. Uh, and it's like I said, he's in some ways the most. Have you watched a lot of De Palma interviews? Like, does he seem like, does he know how excessive he is or how, does he have a sense of humor about it or is he? He's kind of got that New York, you know, thing of like, fuck you. I mean, he's just doing his thing. Yeah. You know, he's, I think he gets attacked a lot and probably yes. rightfully so. You can look at the, the Wikipedia page and he says, quote, I'm always attacked for having an erotic sexist approach, chopping up women, putting women in peril. I'm making suspense movies. What else is going to happen to them? <laughs> Well, Brian, I mean, you know, many other things could happen to right. them. David Thompson, great film critic, wrote about De Palma. 
Quote, there's a self-conscious cunning in De Palma's work, ready to control everything except his own cruelty and indifference, end quote. I think he kind of owns it in a way, because if you look at the movies, like the movies own it. The movies are sort of unabashedly themselves and sort of unabashedly overly sometimes stylized. And as a director of actors, that doesn't seem to be the thing he's first and foremost interested in, I would say. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, to me, when I watch some of these movies, except something like Blowout, which I think is a pretty controlled, taut 70s thriller, they're just so over the top and they're so sort of committed to the style of the way the images look on the screen. That a lot of the other stuff, plot, acting dynamics, you know, story, like some of that stuff seems like sometimes it maybe falls a little bit by the wayside in service of that. Yeah. I mean, in this case, like, I don't think it falls by the wayside. It's serviceable. Like, it's not bad. And certainly the plot in this, it moves. There's not a lot of subtlety, but like everything does fit together. And just to talk about his erotic fixation and or uh, treatment of women, the women in here, the sort of supporting characters, like I'm thinking of that split screen. And you have a couple of women who are like, like, I'm cold and we're rehearsing. I don't want to be in the bikini. Like, no, we want to look at you. This woman is standing up for herself. And it's, there's actually also a scene where (laughs) the the implication is they do try to assault Phoenix. And she comes out and is like, oh my gosh, they wanted me to. And she said no. And she said no. So it's definitely very conscious and put that out there and saying that this is what these women go through in this industry and I think probably the implication in Hollywood as well whether that's enough but like I said I I found his treatment of Phoenix not just as being a perfect love object Mm -hmm. as having more depth to her you know I don't know if refreshing is the right word but um, more complicated yeah she is more complicated she's allowed to have this kind of interesting arc and not the stereotypical arc but in a way I found myself as a viewer I was like there's nobody really to root for here in the movie even though the movie is what it is it's a confession it's not a it's not a serious movie. So her willingness to turn, you're led to believe that she and Winslow are sort of these kindred pure artistic spirits at the beginning. And yes, this is the truth of the business that we're talking about. That's what the music business will do to those who want to step into the arena yeah. and play. Right. If you're willing to start making these compromises, these sacrifices, it becomes a slippery slope. Indeed. And so for her, once she's presented with what she wants or thinks she wants, she has no qualms about buying in and becoming yet the latest of Swan's conquests, however fleeting we're led to believe that would be. Right. Um, and then you have Paul Williams, I mean, who is such a bizarro 70s and 80s presence and yeah. a part of everyone's childhood, the writer of so many freaking incredible songs that it's a little bit off-putting. Off-putting in the sense that it the talent for songwriting comes in such an odd package Someone who's four foot eight coming out of high school. Mm-hmm. This small, frequently overweight in the 70s and 80s, long, blonde haired, behind big sunglasses, like wearing three piece suits, cutting up on every hacky TV show From there the was. Show. I mean, just such a weird presence out of nowhere then wrote like these insane amounts of songs. Yeah, I think that's the thing that that blows me away. It's not just that he was a fixture and like, oh, remember he was on every TV show for a while. But prior to that, he had already this amazing career. And all of these songs are songs that everybody, even me, who doesn't like music, like I know of Rainbow Connection. Yeah. And it's amazing to think of how much of our conception of this time is culturally or pop culturally is filtered through one person's uh, aesthetic. Yes. So just to rattle off a few, Old Fashioned Love Song, We've Only Just Begun, Rainy Days and Mondays, Rainbow Connection, Evergreen, which is the love theme from Streisand's A Star is Born, uh, for which he won Academy Award, Theme to Love Boat. Wow, that, <laughs> that's one I had missed. Which is a really great, efficient theme, by the way. Love, exciting and new. Come aboard We're expecting you And love Life's sweetest reward Let it flow It floats back to you Run. The love 
So Paul Williams, have you seen the documentary about him? Still alive? Yeah, still alive, yes. It's really good. Yeah, I watched such a sweet man. He's a sweet man. It's funny because we talked about going back through how this movie connects to everything in the FCAC cinematic podcasting <laughs> universe. When we did, what's the crazy one? Oh, when we did Flash Gordon. <laughs> what's the crazy one? You have to yeah. be a little more specific. When we did Flash Gordon, and it's a similar documentary sort of following the Flash Gordon guy through his post-Flash Gordon lower rungs of showbiz. It's presented with some dignity and he approaches it with a charming appreciation and, and lack of obfuscation for yeah. where he is. Paul Williams similarly is shown playing some pretty, pretty bad gigs. I mean, yeah. but always has such a great aplomb and is nonplussed and doesn't have like, it's not a sadness attached to him in a yeah. way. But it's such an interesting documentary and got a lot of criticism at the time because the filmmaker really put himself in it in such a way that does become annoying. But I actually kind of like that because I think that's the truth probably of many documentarians. And I think it made an interesting contrast with Paul Williams, who is so, you know, he's a magnetic figure and he was yeah. charming on the talk show circuit. But later in life, I think he's a little bit more retiring. There's a, a mm -hmm. humility that I think if he didn't have somebody who was willing to put himself in there, the documentary might have been a little bit less, you know, like it made for a nice contrast. Yeah. And a lot of what's great about it is his sobriety and yes. his ability to look back on his life and understand and tell stories against himself and that humility that you're talking about. And he's still a ham. And I thought yeah. he talked very succinctly about, and he actually gets angry at the filmmaker who first presents it, which was basically the filmmaker is asking him, you wrote so many incredible songs that really have real artistic merit to them. He's a pop songwriter, but he writes, to write something that will stand the test of time for hundreds of years, the filmmaker basically says like, hey, at what point did that stop mattering to you? And did you kind of just chase being a punchline on TV? Paul Williams says, I don't, I don't appreciate that question. There's a negativity attached to the way you're phrasing that question. It kind of bugs me. I haven't had that before from you. That's again, that's kind of like in his sobriety. He's just like stating what he's feeling in yeah. the moment. But then he actually does answer that and say like, I liked it. I was addicted to the fame, addicted to the attention. He has a great anecdote of like, he won an Academy Award, you know? And then they show up the next day. He did the show. They're looking for someone to jump out of a plane in the Celebrity Olympics or whatever. Right. And the guy says to him like, why did you do that? And he's like, because you wake up, you win an Academy Award and you're like, okay, what's next? Now what? Yeah. He talks a lot about the difference between being different, which he felt his whole life because of his size and being special, which is being recognized for abilities that he possessed. And these were all opportunities for him, which eventually led him astray. You can see some sad Paul Williams appearances and you can see some brilliantly, sparklingly funny, great ones. In this in particular, I thought he was a really interesting presence and made this character different than the devil that it might have been. And there's so much source material between Faust and Phantom of the Opera and Dorian Gray. And yet the confection that he makes is something a little bit different. Like there is the yes. line when he when he is on the roof confronting the phantom yeah, and the phantom has tried to kill himself, but he can't. And then he tries to kill Swan. He's like, Winslow, what a foolish thing to do. Didn't you read your contract closely? See what it says, terms of agreement. Can you read what it says? This contract terminates with Swan. No more suicides, Winslow. You gave up your right to rest in peace when you signed this contract. What if you do find a loophole? Is that what you're thinking? Forget it. And if you as much as say boo to anyone at the paradise, you will never see Phoenix again. Oh, yes. About the love songs. Perhaps a duet. I'm under contract, too. That to me was so exciting because it's like so melodramatic, yes. and, but but just like a layer being added. And it was so different than the Faust story because he's mm -hmm. not, of course, the devil. He is another person caught up in this system. Well, and that whole scene where he makes the deal with the devil in the guise of himself yes. in the mirror. Look, Paul Williams is not a great actor, but that bathtub scene is actually really compelling. And oh, yeah. he, for someone who would probably have described himself as a narcissist in that time of his life, it's probably no small irony that he's at his best acting with himself. Totally. As opposed to another person that he can actually interact and listen to. But opposite himself in the mirror in the bathtub, he's really compelling and vulnerable. There is such an organic talent there. Yes. I think that's what I was getting at. Because like, yes, he's not a great actor in terms of range, but he is a compelling presence yeah. and a sincere presence. Like emotions do oh, yeah, come man. across. And I think that's probably also why he's such a good songwriter and such totally. a good lyricist. It's because he is very in touch with those emotions. Play a little Rainbow Connection. Just play a little of that, the, the sadness, the loneliness, and the hope. That's like all the great Paul Williams songs are about all of those things. Rainbows, 
are visions, but only illusions, and rainbows have nothing to hide. So we've been told, and some choose to believe it. I know they're wrong, wait and see. Someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection, the lovers, the dreamers, and me. Whether he's singing, which is a specific thing, or whether Kermit the Frog or Barbara Streisand, they allow interpretation from the artist at the same time that the fundamental or Karen Carpenter, let's not forget that. I mean, we've only just begun. Mm -hmm. That's a fucking incredible song. Did you ever see this movie from like 10 years ago called uh, like 1418? I think it was. It was with uh, Samuel L. Jackson and John Cusack. It was like a sort of a throwaway mm -hmm. horror thing. Where, was that the one in the hotel room, the motel room? Yeah. Yes. And the song You've Only Just Begun, We've Only Just, we've begun, only just begun, keeps uh, becomes like a motif yeah. in it. So that's every time I hear you mention it, I, I think yeah. back to that movie. And that's really all that I remember about it. He's just an incredible talent. Yeah. Speaking of strange and incredible talents, yes. this movie is chock full of them. Boy, William Finley, who, you know, I didn't really know his name, and he definitely popped out both in The Fury and yes. here. His ability to allow himself to go into the melodrama of this, of yeah. this character, is uh, he, is, he is dynamite. Yeah, he's a very unique and specific presence and really works in this. Both with the comedy of it, certainly in the beginning, of there's a lot of this stuff that is exaggerated yes. and played a satire, and he is able to inhabit it. Another De Palma. Uh, regular George Mamoli, Philbin. who plays Philbin, who's the right-hand man to Swan. He was famously in Mean Streets. I have to admit, I, I don't know. No, he's in New York, New York. Him, but his name didn't mean anything to me. He was also in some funny 80s shows. McLean Stevenson, after MASH, famously had three or four sitcom, which did not work out, despite everyone trying really, really hard. Yeah. And this one was one of my favorites, Hello, Larry, in which George Mamoli also starred. Well, hello Larry. You talk to people all day for a living. But all those easy answers you are giving. Are you really living your life that way? Portland is a long way from LA. A long way. Hello Larry. Do kids the reds alone just ain't that easy? The questions they are asking. And look at this coming up. I told you everything is tied in. You know who that is? Kim Richards wow. from Escape to Witch Mountain. And also, that was from the golden age of the opening credit theme oh, yes. song. So I love George Mamoli. Again, a bold choice on Brian De Palma's part. Scene two to have that long single take monologue George Mamoli gives to Swan. Yeah, that's and a, a really ugly monologue. Like, yeah, what it lays out. He's yes. complaining about a, a star that has kind of betrayed them. Yeah, it's it's pretty tough stuff. It's the sign of De Palma's talent that he can pull that off because it's not traditional narrative. I mean, to start on this Grease Shanana thing that is staged so proficiently that at first you're like, OK, this is a 50s greaser thing. Right. But then to start listening to the lyrics and realize this is warped and yeah. a parody of that and then to have it go where it goes. Yeah, both in the song itself and in their stage And in their stage performances. So then you're like, okay, I don't know what the hell this is. Then you have this Memoli monologue. You've never met Swan yet, so you don't know that he's talking to someone. He's just talking really directly to the camera. Yeah. And then, yeah, this whole story being unfolded. It's, it's so, that's when I was like, I'm in, man. Rod Serling, the crazy titles and credits, the Greaser performance, the Memoli thing. And it's I don't know where we're going, yeah. but I am <laughs> <laughs> on board. Thank you, Brian. What do you know or like Garrett Graham from? Garrett Graham is a really interesting counterculture figure who I first encountered and loved so much in a film I've talked a lot about, Used Cars, yes. which is a great film from 1980. It's Bob Zemeckis, Kurt Russell, the great Jack Warden. Spielberg and Milius were executive producers. It's the only R-rated Zemeckis film. Oh, no kidding. So if you like your Bob Zemeckis, but you want to get things a little raunchier, um, <laughs> it's a great movie. Bob and, Zemeckis after dark. And Gary Graham, he was someone who came up with De Palma maybe around the same time. I think he went to Columbia and I think kind mm -hmm. of in that New York film scene at the time, he was in a bunch of early De Palma things, but he was also an actor, a songwriter. He wrote songs with Bob Weir of 
of the Grateful Dead. Yes. So he's just an interesting kind of counterculture figure and, and a great presence on screen. Yeah. In this, I mean, it's such a of its time, I guess. Here's a little of him on stage. He's, his character is named Beef. Life at last. Salutations from the other side. I can see that you're the devil's pride. Do you realize that all of you donated some hope? Or you hated that was part of you? I'm your nightmares coming true. I am your crime. Life at last. Sit and listen while the fun begins. Hearts are broken and the bad guys win. Sit and listen, all the cutting up is easy in a season for the queasy or the weak of heart. He's a, he's a Frankenstein character. He's assembled from the body parts of previously eviscerated audience members. Hey, Chris, tell me I'm crazy, but isn't this kid in this crowd shot the other kid? We we're just speaking of Kim Richards. Isn't that kid the, the brother? Yeah, yeah. I think that's wishful thinking. Anyway, that's Garrett Graham. He, if you want to see a great Garrett Graham performance, watch Used Cars. Used Cars. We now have a toll-free telephone number. That's and right. And we would like listeners to call us. Let me log in so I can figure out what our number is because I purposely chose a good one. And what we want you to do is something like call us and leave us a message. Do I need to be That's more specific it. than that, Chris? Yeah. You could say anything you want. You anyway. can have suggestions of what we should do, shouldn't do. You Tell know. us a movie that you've got to watch all the way through whenever it's on. Things that you hate in movies. I would think that something we would have fun with is if people said, I want you guys to address this trope and let us find some examples to say, we got this great voicemail from a listener and they mentioned this filmic trope. Call us toll free, 855-755-5322. That's 855-755-5322. That is very memorable. Yeah. 855-755-5322. Yeah. Um, Now, Chris is going to record a clever voicemail thing so that when you call, you're going to hear him and he's going to figure out how to do it. Yeah, there's value added. Another musical performance that ties into something else that we talked about, Lee Wilkoff, not that he is in it. He would have been great in this, though. From Disco Beavers in Outer Space, Peter uh, Elbing, Elbling. Oh yeah, Peter Elbling is one of the Juicy Fruits, and an, that's right. This is pretty interesting. We mentioned the Juicy Fruits as sort of a Shanana parody, also a monkeys parody. Well, like the Juicy Fruits are used in a bunch of different guises. Well, right. and originally, I guess they wanted to use Shanana for that in the beginning, yeah. and they end up being different bands throughout the thing. simple perfection there's nothing that's harder to find someone to lead us protect us and feed us and help us to make up our minds we need a man that's sophisticated quiet and strong and well educated where to go what to do could it be somebody super like you If that's an inside joke, if they're meant to be different people, or if it's more like that they're transforming. Some of the musical numbers, I, I think the, the 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 Faust number from Winslow is really good. I think it's worth playing a little snippets of some of these that are so good. It's I lost control. I swore I'd sell my soul. Phoenix's old souls number at the end is is also kind of beautiful. Our paths have crossed and parted. Um, there were a couple things that I wanted to talk about just in terms of like the trivia around yes. around making it. Uh, like you said, the name of the character Swan did change from Spectre. Mm-hmm. William, <laughs> William Finley actually almost did lose his face. 
in the pressing thing. <laughs> I read that. Pretty frightening. Oh, wait, they no, had... I thought he... Oh, wait, you're right. I'm sorry. I'm confusing it with George Mamoli almost losing his head in the Schrader film, Blue Collar. Oh, Mamoli's in that as well? Which, again, ties into our Paul Schrader Light Sleeper, Light Sleeper. episode. And George Mamoli, uh, there was a scene where Richard Pryor had to throw something at him. And instead of missing him, he kind of crowned him with some piece of metal or something. And I think Mamoli actually had to sue the film and Richard Pryor because of his injuries. Wow. But yes, to your point, William Finley. Because they were using an actual record press and they put sure, in- Fair uh, similitude. Very important to De Palma. <laughs> yeah. The one piece of realism he wants to include. Well, let me tell you, the cocaine that Gary Graham was snorting backstage looked like a real bag <laughs> of cocaine. So. Um, but it was fitted with, what did they call them? Chocks to, to yes. keep it from closing entirely on his face. But I guess the press was so so much that it broke the chocks and almost crushed his actual face. And as IMDb put it, it was Finley's speed and timing that saved him from being seriously hurt as he got his head out just in time. His scream in the scene was, in fact, not acting. <laughs> Oh, good to know. The sacrifices that we make. And actually, another scene that I thought was fantastic was the first time you see Swan and the Phantom together. Yes. When uh, they're in the recording studio? His, in the recording studio, yeah. studio in his voice box. I was reading about that, this electronic room uh, that he was in. It's not just random buttons and stuff that the art people did. It was a huge Moog electronic synthesizer. It was Tonto. Which stands Yeah, it's actually, for, it's a real location. It's the record plant. So that kind of carpeted wood pod-like setting is actually a real location, actual famous, very famous recording studio, the record plant. And yes, that is Tonto. That's a giant custom-built synthesizer. I, I really liked that scene, again, because you have the desperation and the fact that, wow, he really, he's going to go through with this. Like, I really thought when <laughs> Swan walks away, he's like, no way. Yes. Is, he's just going to go on being the Phantom. But then the scene where they're auditioning the people and uh, Phoenix, <laughs> and I love audition scenes. Again, I don't know if this really ties into all that jazz, but, you know, similar to all that jazz, we have Swan watching these auditions and some terrible auditioners before Phoenix comes in and kills it. I love the detail of why he didn't just cast Shanana. Did you read that? Two. One that he either wanted his backup band or that he found Shanana too difficult. Too difficult to work with. I just love the idea of Shanana being too difficult to work with. <laughs> they were thinking like, our power is not going to last forever. Dude, Bowser, like, notorious dick. Really? No, just kidding. I don't know. I was like, well, how, how difficult could Shanana be? Like, I understand. Like, they got to do their thing. What do you, I'm just not sure where, I'm on team shot on us. So I don't know who could find it difficult. It's like, we got the gold lame suits. We need the microphones. We got the choreographer team. It is what it is. I don't know. Maybe that, maybe that was it. They were like, okay, so we need you to assault members of the audience. And Sean and I was like, no, no, no. It we probably don't do was that. that, to be honest with you. Probably maybe it was. Yeah. Who and knows? look, and again, this is a parody of what they are actually doing. Yeah. You know, and, and like I said, they might've been like, look, this is not going to last forever, this meal ticket. <laughs> so uh, we don't want to hasten its demise. What about the Betty Buckley thing? Did you read that? This is such yes. a weird... I'd have to watch this again. But apparently during the initial audition and orgy sequences at the Swan character's home, which is called the Swanage. Uh, oh, I thought it was Swanhenge. No, no. Swanage. Swanage. It. it says the character and voice work, I'm assuming they mean of Phoenix is provided by Betty Buckley. She had originally auditioned for a role in the film and was not cast, but De Palma called on her because of her skill with ADR and voice work. And then, of course, she was finally cast in a pretty iconic role as the gym teacher, Miss Collins, in Carrie, which was his next film. That's another thing about De Palma that is interesting is that he's one of those filmmakers that we've had a few on where the movies are so shockingly different from each other in genre, yet they are all Brian De Palma movies. Right. And also, you know, a lot of these auteurs, they do assemble sort of like a coterie of people that they trust and will use yes. often. Yeah, he's no different. I also loved the Death Records little quick shot when Winslow, a month after the audition scene, is kind of like earnestly showing up to be like, hey, Mr. Swan told me that in a month I might hear from him. And it's been a month. I haven't heard anything. And the secretary takes his name and then <laughs> does a quick throwaway shot where she scrolls down a hidden list. And they include such people as Alice Cooper, David Geffen, Bette Midler, Peter Fonda, may he rest in peace, Dick Clark, Chris Christofferson. There's a funny list of people. Yeah, yeah. Including Winslow Leach. And, and Winslow Leach, it says, do and not. And it's like blown up like do huge, not admit. never to be seen. <laughs> Which, again, part uh, of the, uh, like, 
you know, we talk about some of the uh, exaggerated elements. There's, yes. there's that. There's the very fact that it's called like Death Records. His escape from prison is so dumb and weird and fast. Mm-hmm. After P.S. murdering or maybe just uh, really assaulting a prison guard. Uh, yeah, pretty sure pretty murdering. Sure. But I mean, again, this is dental assault prison. So, oh yeah, uh, look, whatever you got to do to get out. <laughs> Which is unjustly just, imprisoned. Just hop on the uh, hop on hop a on box. conveyor belt. I love that montage. Oh, yeah. Hop on a conveyor belt, which, by the way, they don't even bother to get him actually into the box. Yeah. Next shot, box falling out of a truck in the city. In just the right place. Just the right place. And then is it that point that he falls into the East River or no? He has to get horribly disfigured first. Yeah, he runs into into death. Oh, uh, right. Yes. Into uh, Swan Song. Right. The building. And I think yeah. that's one of the times that they actually do still call it Swan Song, despite the, uh, despite the, the Led Zeppelin thing. I think it's actually probably after that hmm. that he falls into the river. But we got a little bit into alternative casting by mentioning yes. Betty Buckley. Let's get all the way into it. Uh, we got a whole slow. I got to get out of here. Put that one back. Other people who were considered for Jessica Harper's role included Sissy Spacek. Uh, she auditioned for that. She wouldn't have been right. No. And you know, of course, that Paul Williams was originally thought of, considered. But Paul Williams was not originally, of course, supposed to be Swan. That he was originally contracted or contacted about writing the songs. Right. But then Brian De Palma was like, maybe you should He's play a very the convincing Swan. Oh, he was originally thinking oh, of him oh. as the Phantom. Yeah. Mm. That's exactly, that was Paul Williams' reaction. <laughs> He's he was like, like yeah, I, I don't have the physical yeah. thing to, to sort of want to do it. And then he got pushed over to being Swan, which, again, is, I think, a, yeah. especially knowing what his celebrity would become. Yes. It's such a perfect use of him. Garrett Graham talked about some of the other other people that were considered and stuff, though I get the impression from reading about it that Garrett Graham might not be um, the most trust some of his trustworthy trustworthy he, he might mean be like, unreliable well uh, i mean look it's 1974 yeah, then, I mean, yes, again, 76 i mean so i'm trying to be del- delicate about it at that time sort of originally the studio wanted peter boyle as beef <laughs> that would have been strange yeah love peter boyle but not the first person i think about when i think about glam rocker but well, hey maybe hey, i was just saying, that's a lack of imagination hey, on your that's, part. My, that's my mistake not his you know i mean it could have been a precursor to his role in young frankenstein you know considering <laughs> the frankenstein uh but at that time graham himself was being was being thought of as swan so it would have been paul williams mm. as the phantom uh garrett graham as swan peter boyle as beef uh, yeah, look, I'm, as I said before, nobody's particularly good in terms of the acting, but they are well cast yes. as who they're supposed yes. to be. Then last is that uh, John Voight was at some point considered for Swan. John Voight as Swan. Because also, you know, we think we're in uh, Urban Cowboy. I know, time. Urban Cowboy era. Handsome, I know. Uh, two, handsome blonde guy. Yeah, two. Yeah, I know. I, again, I think the use of the reverse physicality of Paul Williams is Swan's best trait here. Though, And then the last thing, of course, is that despite all of this musical chairs and stuff, uh, William Finley was always who Brian De Palma had in mind <laughs> when he wrote it. Right. So uh, that's why it was sort of funny that if it had worked out the way the studio wanted, the friend of Brian De Palma's might have been left out in the cold with nothing to do. Yes. But that's it. That's all that I got for alternative casting. Okay. Do you have any rants or raves? I do, actually. I have Rave. a couple raves. Well, more like a headline first. Okay. Which... Headlines. Headline. Uh, did you hear? Wait, uh, rants or raves or headlines? Yeah, it's talking. You, you just you said you had some rants raves, but it's more like a headline. So I'm just you know not to confuse Matt the engineer. I know he's pretty facile on the board, but about what he's going to put. Well, in you there. know which one is he playing here? Well, how about both at the same time? Yeah, let's start getting experimental. Headlines. Here's a headline that I was going to rave about okay. because Headl- I'm excited. So you'd like to do headlines? Headline. Great. Francis Ford Coppola, who we've mentioned. Yes. You know he also recut besides Apocalypse Now, <laughs> just recut the Cotton Club. And I was reading a review of it in The Guardian, and it sounds pretty exciting. Despite the fact that all the musical numbers were put back in, they were saying that this new recut version is fantastic, considering how dull the original was, but this is much, much better. And uh, as somebody who's gained a reappreciation of Coppola, I'm kind of excited to see it. Okay, I I don't really, this is the Richard Gere? Richard Gere, Diane Lane, Gregory Hines, uh, Uh, Lawrence Fishburne. Nick Cage? Really? Nick Cage is in it. That I miss it. James Remar, the great James Remar. And the great James Remar, yeah. So like I said, it's not a movie that I've ever seen or have any particular... Look, I'm guaranteeing you it's over two and a half hours long, correct? Uh, Francis, what am I coming back for? I mean, do I need to see it again? 
Well, according just leave to this, him alone. he didn't like it. He said, you know, he was allowed himself to be bullied uh-huh. by the studios and that now with 35 years of distance, he could put some of the stuff back in that they told him to take out. Whether it does turn out this to be true, those- I think it'll be exciting. Maybe when you're at Comic-Con this weekend, you can find some people to talk to about it. I doubt it, but who knows? Stranger things have happened. Uh, that's the only headline that I okay. have. I have just a rant or rave. Um, okay. We're getting some interesting feedback from our Once Upon a Time in Hollywood episode. Ooh. It's funny, you know, we mentioned our colleague Jeff, who wasn't a fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got some texts from super listener Frazier, who also wasn't a big fan of the movie, although our persuasive powers were, of course, causing him to realize that he probably needs to see it again because he... Because was, he didn't agree with us. He didn't agree with before. us. But it's like, you know, we're sort of like a brainwashing podcast where you listen to it and you're like, God, they sound like they really know what they're talking about. I must be in the wrong. And and all of you who don't agree with us, you are. I saw some additional comments where people were taking the movie to task for its. Is it a spoiler if I say it's. I think probably. Although somebody on Instagram just totally outed the, <laughs> the end. I don't, know, I don't know at what point you have to be protective of the spoilers, but let's just say that the ending of the film involves the Manson family murders in a novel and unexpected way. And a lot of people are like, well, Squeaky Frome in real life was not as forceful and dominant as Dakota Fanning portrays her. I saw super listener R.F. Brown made some comment that the violence in the movie, there's not much violence in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but the the violence that is there is sort of disproportionately directed at the female characters and they're portrayed as the sheeple of Manson and not as their individualistic characters, which I sort of thought, wait, like Dakota Fanning, Lena Dunham, like they're in charge. They're like the shot callers in the Manson family that's as portrayed in the movie. Mm -hmm. But again, I think just misses the larger point. We're in a Quentin Tarantino cinematic universe here. We're not in a a documentary storytelling of the Manson killings, even though we're using real people. And I guess that's what throws people off. And I think that is good in a way. It's rightfully throwing some people off. And it's always interesting to me when people want something from a movie that they don't get and then they're unhappy, which I understand. But again, they're wrong. And I think to quibble that a cult member's individuality and agency <laughs> is not emphasized is, I think, missing also part of the point. Of being in a cult. Being in a cult. So like if you're in a cult, you probably want to give up some agency. Yeah. I don't know. But what do I know? Never been in a cult. So anyway, I think it's good. People are interested in the movie. I'd be curious. I, I assume the movie is going to be re-released as we get into Oscar time. Yes, I think that makes sense. And I think probably it's one of those movies that a lot of people missed during its brief summer window. And I hope that they give it a good extended release. I continue to wave the flag high for, as I call it, Uate. <laughs> Once upon a time. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, Uate. Yeah. That's a, I I think, you think that'll catch on? I thought you were talking about The Watcher. Uate. Watch you, The Watcher from You guys the seen Watcher? Universe. Oh, yeah. Fifth time seeing Uate. <laughs> yeah, you and that guy. Anybody who recognizes what you say when you say that, we're automatically you know in the it's same a, that's at least three times. That is. All right, Chris, I got to wrap it up. I got I to uh, jam, buddy. I got to get out of here. Okay. Until next week, keep going your own way and the world will eventually catch up. Like with Phantom of the Paradise, it might take a quarter century or so, but... Roads? Where we're going, we don't need roads. Thank you for listening to this episode of Full Cast and Crew. I hope you enjoyed it. If so, drop us a line. You can email us at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at at fullcastandcrew or on Instagram at fullcastandcrew or, of course, find the podcast on Facebook. And if you really, really enjoyed it, take a screenshot of your favorite episode on your podcast player and forward it to a friend so they can subscribe and figure out what you're always laughing about. And if you didn't enjoy it, I don't know, drop us a line anyway. I can take it. <laughs>